0: Please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me again to the book of Joel. Joel chapter 2 today, picking up in verse 18, and reading to the end of the chapter in verse 32. For those of you who have been with us for this study thus far, you will notice a turning point in the text uh, just at verse 18. Up until now, it has been a prediction or a recounting uh, of disaster and judgment Chapter 1 was a recounting of judgment in real time, a locust invasion that was happening in uh, in Israel during Joel's day. And chapter 2 expanded the reality, the spiritual reality, that was behind that judgment, foreshadowing a greater day of the Lord to come. And so it happened that we we looked in two phases. Today, the Lord will respond to his people, and we'll also see this fall out in two phases. The turning point within our text will come at verse 28. Verse 28. So for those of you, as we're reading along, you'll notice that the Lord begins to speak of afterward and something for your sons and your daughters rather than you. The Lord is answering both the destruction of chapter 1 and chapter 2 in what we see in the rest of our text today for something uh, that he will give his people in time and something that he provides at the end of time. And So with that in mind, we're going to turn to Joel chapter 2, beginning to read in verse 18, and following to the end of the chapter And before we read this word together, uh, please join me again in uh, in prayer to the Lord as we seek his blessing. Let's pray. O gracious Lord and God, as we come to you, we thank you for your mercy to us in giving us this word. You speak not only words of warning, but words of comfort, and we pray that we would receive them by your Spirit, whom you pour out upon your children, to be drawn to Christ Jesus, our Savior, and to trust in him. O Lord God, we pray, lead us and direct us in this study. Help us to find your mind and your word. Help us to trust in the Savior whom you have sent, we pray in his name. Amen. You're now God's word as we find it in Joel chapter 2, beginning to read in verse 18. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more and make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rearguard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. As far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. Well, when we pick up uh, Joel's prophecy in the second half of chapter 2, the God we encounter is the God who knows how to give good gifts to his children a comforting thought to us. We often dwell, we hear people repeat, you've heard me repeat that promise that the Lord is able to restore. God knows how to give good gifts to his children. This is what Christ taught us. But we also need to understand that all of God's children are a charity case. We see that visibly in Israel at the time of Joel. The locusts have descended. Devoured the land, their material poverty has become a visible representation of their spiritual emptiness. As we left the text last week, we heard the priests crying out for mercy. We heard the prophet urging repentance. And we heard that open-ended, hopeful question, who knows? Who knows whether the Lord will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him? And it's that question that opens into our text today, who knows? The land is desolate, the people are destitute, and what will the Lord give to a people who has nothing to offer to him? We know how we give to people who have nothing to offer to us, and we might be tempted to think that the Lord does the same. We know how to give to charity. We participate in the Uh, Operation Christmas Child Shoeboxes every year. We give things maybe, maybe to local shelters. We help a family that's struggling from one paycheck to the next. And we know that in those situations, what is most needed are necessities. Small things, regular things, little things, anything just to ease the suffering that's going on. And sometimes when we see the way that the Lord gives to his people, we're tempted to think that he gives meagerly as we give meagerly. But he does not. Our God is far too generous. Our God gives good things to his children. And if we wonder what he gives to a people who have nothing to give to him, the answer in a word is that he gives us everything. We find in this text is that the Lord promises to give everything that we need and far more than we could imagine because in Joel chapter 2, the Lord promises to give to his people himself. He gives us fullness of joy, eternal salvation, His own personal presence. He will be with His people, He will dwell among them, and He will make them satisfied in Him. Satisfaction is the first of four things that the Lord promises for His people in this text. He tells us in Verses 18 and 19, Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. Satisfaction, he says. All that you need, not meagerly, not, not just the bare necessities, the grain and the wine and the oil, and you will have enough to be satisfied. This is the summary statement for the first half of this chapter, but you notice that as you pay attention to the details as it goes on, God's promise gets even bigger than grain and wine and oil. He promises in verse 20 that he says he will remove the northerner far from them. That's a strange way of speaking, but the context makes it clear that the Lord is speaking of this locust invasion. He says that he's going to drive them in different directions and dump them into the sea and into the wilderness, and that's how a locust invasion often is ended. By a strong wind, locusts aren't strong flyers, so they follow the wind wherever it goes. And so a wind comes along and picks them up and sometimes dumps them into the sea where they're drowned or into the wilderness where they're starved. Uh, Augustine of Hippo tells us in his days there was an invasion of locusts in Egypt uh, that was taken up and dropped into the Mediterranean Sea, and then they began to wash up on the shores. So many in number that the stench rose and there was a pestilence that followed After this invasion of locusts, Raymond Dillard points out that the bodies of drowned locusts have on a number of occasions been observed piled three to four feet high on the coasts around the Red Sea. It's not a nice thought, it's not a good image, and it certainly would not have been a pleasant smell, but the stench of these dying locusts was the first sign that God was giving that he was restoring the fortunes of his people. He says, I will remove this plague and these attackers, these northerners. And then in verses 21 to 25, the Lord speaks comfort. It speaks almost as though He were directing His, uh, his comfort to the land and to the beasts and to the people Himself. Fear not, O land, He says. Uh, these locusts may have done great things, they may have uh, worked terrible things terrible damage, but the Lord will do far greater. Fear not, you beast of the field, he says. These vines that were stripped down in chapter 1 will spring forth and they'll have a full yield. These pastures that looked as though they were blackened by fire will burst forth into green. There will be food in the wilderness and food in the fields and food hanging from every branch and vine in the kingdom of his children. Earlier we read that with Uh, This invasion, the gladness was dried up from the children of man, but now the Lord commands gladness. Be glad, he says, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. It's not dry anymore. He says the rains are coming. He's going to send the early springtime rain that makes the ground soft so you can plow and plant. He's going to send the latter summer rain that makes the grain grow tall and the fruit ripen. It's going to work together, he says, to make the threshing floors full and the vats overflow. And he's going to pay back more than what was lost in the destruction. So that by the time we get to verse 26, the Lord returns to the theme of his promise. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, he says. What do God's empty-handed people find when they turn to him in repentance? They find satisfaction in the Lord. Now, when we're thinking about this, we need to make a distinction in our minds. And the distinction we need to make is the difference between satisfaction on the one hand and contentment on the other hand. Contentment, of course, is a good thing. It's a Christian virtue to be content. The Puritans called contentment a rare jewel. It's something worth pursuing, we should go after contentment, but contentment is not satisfaction. Contentment is the sort of thing that you have to work your way toward, and you work your way toward contentment by lowering your desires to meet that which has been supplied to you. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says that for the sake of Christ, I am content. I'm content with weaknesses and insults and Persecutions and calamities, those were probably not the things that Paul desired. And yet the Lord showed that he could be trusted. God had proven to Paul that his strength was perfect for his weakness. And so Paul was able to get there. He was able to work his way to contentment. But contentment is not satisfaction. Satisfaction comes when when your desires are met. Satisfaction comes when your tank is full. Satisfaction comes when you can't remember wanting anything other than what you have right now. Now, Contentment is a midweek meal of warmed up leftovers. It fills a need. It gets you by. It's maybe not what you wanted, but you can be happy. You can be content with that. Satisfaction is Thanksgiving dinner. There are ample portions and there's this great variety and there's no taste bud left behind. Contentment is clothing enough to keep you warm, to keep you covered. Satisfaction is a new suit that somehow feels comfortable and confident at the same time. Contentment is believing there's a possibility that your sins could be forgiven, that wrath could be turned away. Satisfaction is believing that you've become a child of the King by grace, that every one of your prayers have been heard, that every one of your tears has been counted that all of your fears about future and judgment have been swallowed up by the hope of the gospel. And the Lord has changed your trajectory. Satisfaction is knowing that there's a God worth rejoicing in and not just a God that you can learn to live with. And that's the satisfaction that the Lord is speaking of for his people. Verse 26, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. That praise is the climax of the promise. This is where all of God's abundance and all of his plenty has been headed all along. They received grain and wine and oil and figs and all of the staples. They received all the things that they wanted and the rain. But the greatest gift that the people received was the assurance that God was for them. That even through their suffering, the Lord has not abandoned his people. Do you notice the second half of that great promise in verse 25 that when we quote this thing about the Lord repaying what the locust has eaten, we almost never carry it through to the end of the verse. But the Lord takes ownership in verse 25. Do you notice that right there in the context of giving in abundance, the Lord says, this is my army and I was in control of this. He says, I sent them to you, and now I'm sending them away. They're going to pile up by the water's edge. But why? Why does the Lord remind his people that he was the one who sent them? Why is it that he takes ownership while he's trying to give them confidence and comfort in what he's doing among them? Is it just so that the people will think that he he wants to destroy them one minute and build them up to the next? Is it so that the people will think that their Lord is, is unreasonable or unpredictable? Or does God take ownership of the locusts so that the people will know that their spiritual satisfaction in him is far more important than their physical satisfaction in the land? This is the climax. You will eat in plenty, and you will be satisfied, and you will rejoice and praise the name of the Lord your God. What God wanted for his people in Israel was the conviction that Yahweh alone was the wonder-working God. That their Lord was worthy of all praise. What he wanted them to know is that after all of their earthly disasters, there was a day of judgment coming. This is a spiritual reality. But also, behind all of their visible blessings, there was this unseen hand. And So the Lord wanted his people to return to him. This is exactly, by the way, what allows us to apply Joel chapter 2 to our own context without twisting this into some strange gospel of prosperity. Yes, the Lord sent plenty and grain and grapes and oil, but the Lord also sent locusts. He also sent the stench of death. He also sent uh, this, this destruction upon the land. And his purpose with all of it was the same. He wanted his people to return to him and he wanted his children to find satisfaction in the Lord. This is what God's empty-handed people receive when we turn to him. We find satisfaction in the Lord. Secondly, we find freedom from shame. There's another layer to the verses that we've already examined. and You see it in verses 26 and 27. It declares the same promise twice. You shall Eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God, there is none else, and my people shall never be put to shame. But if you trace this concept, if you're paying attention to this language, even though it doesn't show up in the same vocabulary, we we find it back in this prayer from the priests. Take a look back at at verse 17. The prophet Joel tells them, Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep. Let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make your heritage, make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? He speaks of a reproach and a byword. It reminds us that here, when the Lord speaks of shame, he's not just dealing with those inward feelings of shame, but he's dealing with the outward effects of it as well. And you probably know the difference. You've probably experienced the difference. Because there are things that you have done, there are things that you desire, that nobody else knows about, and you're glad for that. Because if other people knew what's really in your heart, they might think differently of you. They might treat you differently. That shame might come out and might be a reproach upon you. And if you are a believer, the world may look upon the shame of that sin and it might make them think differently about the God that you serve. And so in the prayer of verse 17, the priests are acknowledging that the shame of the disaster that has come upon the land has theological implications. It says something about who they are and and perhaps says something to the watching world about who their God is. It has covenantal implications. Don't forget that in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, the Lord spoke to the kingdom of Israel, and he told them that he was going to provide for them in a permanent place, so long as they followed his laws and his word. Failure to do so would bring tangible judgment. Their broken fellowship with their God would show up in ways that could be felt. And famine and pestilence and locusts and invaders. Driving them from the land that the Lord promised to their fathers. And now these covenant curses are coming upon them. And they're wondering, maybe the Assyrians, maybe the Philistines are watching what's happening. And they're wondering themselves, how could Yahweh be all that powerful if his people are on the brink of starvation? The shame says something about his people. It says something, perhaps, about their God. And so they cried out in verse 17, asking the Lord to clear his good name. They returned to God with repentant heart. They longed for covenant faithfulness in tangible ways that could be seen and felt, that could be broadcast just as much as their sin had been broadcast. They asked that they would be reassured that they were accepted and that they would be provided for as the Lord had promised. And in response, God is giving them the assurance of the restored relationship that they have. That's why verse 23, you see it, it speaks of the rain not as a blessing, but as a vindication. It's a vindication of the Lord and his care for his people. It's a vindication of the people and and the reality of their repentance and the restoration of their relationship. That's why in verse 19, the Lord answered the priest directly. I will no more make you a reproach upon the nations. He's going to restore their dignity. He's going to remove the shame of their sin. He's going to declare with tangible actions that his people are acceptable in his sight. So what do God's empty-handed people find when we turn to him in repentance? We find freedom from shame. This promise is still for you, dear believer. It looks a little differently now, though, doesn't it? Because uh, not that the Lord and his kingdom is, uh, is, is smaller now, or that his faithfulness is less, but rather his kingdom has expanded, that it's no longer bound by the borders of Palestine. God has a spiritual kingdom that spreads over all the earth. His visible signs of covenant faithfulness are not the grain offerings and the first fruit and the spring and the summer rains, but he has given us signs. Signs that declare to us the removal of shame forever. He's given to us the sign of baptism to convince us that he is able to wash away the stain of our sin and it shall never come back to claim us. He's given us the sign of the Lord's Supper to remind us that repentant sinners are welcome at his table, that we have fellowship with the Lord by faith. And that means, dear believer, that when you receive the bread and the cup of the Lord at his table, you ought to hear two voices speaking to you. You ought to hear first the voice of your Savior. And he pleads on your behalf. He is our priest as well as our sacrifice. He is the spotless Lamb of God who has given up for the sins of his people. And his blood speaks a better word than the blood of righteous Abel. And when you eat and drink the elements by faith, you should hear him interceding for you. You should hear him asking the Father to spare his people to make not his people a reproach, just as the priest in Joel's day prayed. And then in response, you should hear the voice of the Father speaking to you through the Son. And his voice is a voice of welcome. It's a voice of comfort. And his voice through Jesus declares that your sin has been dealt with, that your guilt has been atoned. In the sign of his covenant of grace, you should hear the Father promise for all time, that his people shall never again be put to shame. This is what we receive when we come to the Lord empty-handed. Later, we're going to have a potluck where we all bring our gifts and we we add our fellowship to the table, and it's something that we do, and we'll look across the aisle and say, that looks good, who brought that? That that smells wonderful, but at the table we come to see what the Lord has provided for us. We come empty-handed for a reason. And when we come empty-handed, we find uh, that the Lord gives us freedom from shame. Two more promises in this passage. But again, at this point, there is a shift. The, the Lord speaks to his prophet in verse 28. The prophet begins to speak of the blessings that are still to come for God's people, not just the ones that have already happened and, uh, and those things that would come later. So the third gift of the Lord that he promises to his people is the gift of the Spirit the gift of the Spirit. He says, It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men see visions. Even on the male and the female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit. It's hard for us probably to imagine the way that the first audience heard this promise and what they could make of it and how they understood it. That's a blessing for us, actually. Most prophecies in the Old Testament, though they're fulfilled, it's rare that that they are fulfilled in such a direct and clear way that we can point to day and hour, that the Lord takes his eternal word and brings forth a visible result. But this is one such prophecy. This promise was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, at 9 o'clock in the morning, just about 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. So in his first sermon there, Peter applied these words to that rushing wind, to the tongues of fire that came and were divided among the 120 disciples gathered for prayer. And Peter pointed out what the Lord was doing, showing them signs and wonders in the sky and and on the earth. And he was pointing them to what the Lord was doing as he poured out his spirit before their very eyes. The New Testament ties these verses unquestionably to the beginning of a new era. The establishment of a new covenant. The one that Jeremiah spoke about and the one that Ezekiel spoke about where the Lord would pour out his spirit upon all Israel. The time when God would write his word upon the hearts of his children, they would all know him from the greatest to the least. And so unlike Joel's audience, we know exactly when this word was fulfilled. It's hard to imagine perhaps what the Israelites understood before the coming of the spirit of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit of God, of course, is not, uh, as is sometimes referred to, he was not the silent partner in the Old Testament. Saving faith as a gift to the Spirit is not an invention in the New Testament age. Think about it. Abraham and David and all those saints that we love to read about in the narratives of the Old Testament, they were just as dead in their sin and their trespasses as you were when God called you. They were just as dependent upon a work of God's Spirit to give them repentance and life in Christ as you were. And so the Spirit was active in the Old Testament, giving life. It is the Spirit who gives life, Jesus says in the New Testament. And yet it is true that before the day of Pentecost, the Spirit did not dwell among his people in the same way that he dwells among his people now. The Old Testament spoke of the Holy Spirit rushing or falling or coming upon God's people. Often it was coming upon a select few, a chosen few of leaders and deliverers. And so Saul, the son of Kish, received the Spirit of God as a, a way to mark him out as the first king of Israel. And when it fell, he became a prophet. He began to speak of the Lord and his goodness. The Holy Spirit rushed upon Samson and strengthened his hands to kill a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. The Holy Spirit came upon uh, Basilel, the, the craftsman who created the tabernacle in the Old Testament. He guided their hands in, in architecture and leather work and metalsmithing and embroidery. The Holy Spirit's not absent in the Old Testament but by the time of the prophets it was generally understood that this enduring and overshadowing, over empowering work of God's Spirit was limited to just a few. And now the Lord is assuring his children of something different something even greater than the promise that he gives in verse 27. Do You notice the progression there. Verse 27, the Lord said that when their abundance was complete, they would eat in plenty, and then he says, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. But afterward, he says in verse 28, 28, that his spirit is going to be poured out upon them. It's a progression. Not from bad to good, but from good to better. It's a progression from God in their midst to God poured out upon them. It's a progression from God among them to God within them. In fact, this progression mirrors the words of Christ on the night uh, before his crucifixion. Remember the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples in the upper room. He said, it's good for you that I go away. Unless I go away, the Helper will not come to you. But then John 14, 16, he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. And he says, you know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. Well, how can that be? How can the Spirit who comes after Jesus leaves, be the same Spirit who was among them while Jesus was there. How can the Spirit who dwells with them become the Spirit who dwells in them? And it's possible because the Spirit of God is the Spirit of Christ. That when Jesus walked among the people of Israel, God was among them. He was doing wonders and signs in the heavens and the earth below. But there was coming a day that he would send out his Spirit among them. So when Jesus ascended, he gave gifts to his church, and the greatest gift that he gave was himself. He poured out his Spirit upon all his people. You know him, he said, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. This is what the Lord spoke through Jesus, and it's also what the Lord was saying through Joel. There's coming a day when the power of the Spirit would be spread with liberality, not just among a few, but among young and old, male and female. You prefer the language of Paul. You have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and is in all. And so the Lord says he will pour out his spirit. There's a day coming when the prophetic word would move from the page to the heart. There's a day coming when God's people would know him. There's a day coming when they would be open to hear the word of his grace through Jesus Christ. There's a day coming when the mouths of all God's people would be open to declare the wonderful works of God among the nations. And this is what we receive when we come to him more than we could ask for, more than we could expect. When God's people come to him with empty hands, he gives to us everything because God gives us himself. And so his repentant people receive satisfaction in the Lord and freedom from shame and the gift of his spirit. But then finally we find that when we turn to the Lord in repentance, we also receive salvation from God's judgment. In the final verses of Joel chapter 2, we encounter this promise of what is still yet to come. Verses 28 and 29 were future for Joel and past for us. Verses 30 to 32 are still future for all of us. This day coming that the Lord says awaits in our future when God has fixed a day for judgment. We're not told when it will be, but we're told what to look for. And even in this description, you notice that much of this we have heard already through Joel. Some of the descriptors that he gives to us are are familiar to us already in this short book. It's going to be a day of judgment and a day of darkness and a day of wonders in the heaven and the earth. Even this depiction of the day of the Lord as great and awesome has already been heard. But it's in verse 32 that the prophet adds a new element. It's the element of escape. Do You remember the words of verse 11. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. And he who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. And who can endure it? Is the overwhelming message of the day of the Lord up until this point in verse 32 of Joel's prophecy. The overwhelming message is that when God judges the secrets of men, he will leave no heart unexposed and no sin unexamined and no life uncondemned. The day of the Lord is a day of darkness and gloom and fire and chariot and utter desolation, he's already told us. We found that the day is one where nothing escapes and nowhere is safe and no one endures. But now God offers salvation, verse 32. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. It brings us back to the question of the gifts that the Lord gives to his empty-handed people. And the significance of this language of salvation and escape, it ought to be a humbling thought for us. The Lord is not offering to us a theology of halfway grace. This is not an affirmation that the Lord helps those who help themselves. He's not telling us that he picks us up and and he picks the most promising of the bunch and he gives them that extra oomph to get them over the finish line. He speaks of salvation and that reminds us that there's something that we all need to be saved from. It reminds us that those who are saved and those who are not saved all begin in the same bucket. And the only difference is not what we bring to the table but what the Lord gives to us. We come to him with empty hands and with no piety. And so John Calvin says that in this verse, God offers life to us in death and light in the darkest grave. I think you understand the implications of this verse, but let me be exceedingly clear. These last few verses of Joel hold out to us eternal life and eternal death. The difference between salvation and judgment on the day of the Lord is the difference between hell and heaven and an eternity in God's presence or an eternity removed from him. In these verses we see on the one hand the flock of God gathered into his fold and on the other hand the goats separated for damnation. And we also see that apart from Christ there is no conceivable reason why anyone should expect to find forgiveness on that day. And yet that is what the Lord is promising. grace undeserved, and life in his presence, and fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. What does the Lord give to the sinner who has nothing? Well, when you believe in the Lord Jesus, dear Christian, he gives you everything. He gives you himself, the gift of his spirit, and abundance and fruitfulness in this life, and satisfaction In him, not abundance outwardly per se, but abundance by the working of his spirit. The one who draws us and nourishes us, who becomes in our hearts those rivers of living water welling up and springing forth within us to cause us to trust in him, to look forward to that day of salvation. What does the Lord give to people who have nothing? He gives us everything. Because we find in Christ that the Lord gives to us himself. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you for this word of prophecy. We thank you much more for the fulfillment of it in Christ Jesus. Give us faith in him and life by his name we pray. In Jesus Christ, amen.